It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Lieutenant Colonel Milt Shalinsky. Shalinsky served in Europe in World War II as part of the 385th Bomb Group. On June 20th, 1944, Shalinsky's B-17 bomber was hit and crashed near Brunswick, Germany. He was captured and was held as a POW for the remainder of the war. My name is Milt Shalinsky. I arrived in England and was assigned to the 385th Bomb Squadron when I was 23 years old. We weren't assigned a permanent ship when I was a uh, crew member. However, I I was shot down on a mission and the name of the ship was Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith flew many, many missions and there were a couple of crews that went all the way through with Mr. Smith. And I I flew it once and lost it, (laughs) flew on it once. I was shot down over uh, Brunswick, Germany, our our target being uh, uh, one of the suburbs of Brunswick. The preparation for being a POW was uh, really not that great. They used to uh, give us uh, talks on what you should do and what you shouldn't do if you were captured. Everybody carried a, a packet which contained maps and, and money and material which might help you escape. But it worked fine in uh, France and Belgium, or Holland, where you had underground people to help you. But if you went down in Germany, uh, your chances of getting out of Germany were practically nil as far as escaping is concerned. When we got, uh, when our plane picked up uh, this flak and was disabled, uh, we flew possibly for about, a, I would guess, maybe 30, 40 minutes or maybe an hour. We got hit when we were flying 25,000 feet and uh, two of the engines were knocked out and the third one was uh, damaged somewhat, but we were flying actually about on one and a half from the story I got later on. And uh, between throwing out all of our guns and armor plate and everything else we could tear loose from the plane, we managed to keep the plane in the air, but we were losing altitude continually. And there was a discussion among 
the crew on what we wanted to do, our options being, well, we could try and get back to either Switzerland or, or Sweden maybe, or we could crash land there in Germany and sweat out the war there, or crash land or bail out. But the option that we decided on was trying to get the plane back out over the water in the, in the North Sea, and we were, wanted to ditch the plane. We knew we, we couldn't get back home. We were gonna take our chances on ditching and uh, hopefully be picked up. And uh, in the meantime, we had uh, fired a distress signal after we had gotten hit, and uh, four American fighter planes uh, immediately came around to uh, protect us. We had two P-51s and two P-38s that stayed with us from the time we got hit until we finally jumped, but they were encouraging us very much over the radio to jump, 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 get out of there, get out of there. Well, we were the ones that were gonna get stuck in Germany and we didn't wanna, we didn't wanna jump. We tried to, to get out there and just hopefully be picked up. But it just didn't work out that way, which was probably the best for us. The third engine, which was damaged, finally decided to give up too, and then we had to jump and jump in a hurry, and by that time we were down to about 5,000 feet, and we were nearing the coast, and the flak was already starting to come up for us, and they would have just butchered us if we'd have, if we'd have gone on, so it was a good thing we had to jump, I'm sure. Uh, after we bailed out, well, I was immediately captured by the Germans, and taken to a little town uh, jailhouse. After uh, being held there for a while, why they uh, took us to an ME-110 base where I was just preliminary interrogated. After um, they confiscated my leather jacket with the big wolf on it, that was the first thing they took, and my GI wristwatch. They were about through with me at this, this base here. They, anything that was GI equipment, they can legally confiscate, and, and they did. Anything that was personal items, they took away from you, but returned to you later on. Uh, I was told at the, this particular time that uh, our co-pilot was killed in, in the raid. And uh, after they had picked up, a, uh, rounded up some of the rest of our crew, and uh, they took a couple of our enlisted men out and uh, to pick up the, the body of our co-pilot who was killed. And then all of us who had, had been gathered on to, uh, together at this German airbase were put into a truck and, along with the pine box containing the body of our co-pilot. And we drove for quite some time. Of course, the, we didn't see where we were going, but uh, they stopped at a, a nice German cemetery and, and left off the body of our co-pilot. And uh, we continued on 
And lo and behold, <laughs> we ended up on a, at a Gestapo camp. This was a kind of a harrowing experience. Uh, everybody was put in solitary and kept overnight with no bed, no uh, toilet facilities or, or any, anything whatsoever. But we were just kept there one night. I, they put us in, in the hands of the Gestapo in order to transfer us by train to uh, the in regular Luftwaffe interrogation center, uh, which was down near uh, Munich in Germany. Uh, but uh, they put about 14 men in one little compartment of, of a train with the Gestapo guards all around us, included in, uh, I think 13 of us were American and one British boy. And I have always admired the British ever since this little incident. But as we were driving along on the train to go to this interrogation center, this uh, young British flyer said, I'm leaving, he says, do any of you blokes want to go with me? And nobody answered, but he jumped off of the train and he was gone. And I don't know whether they ever caught him or not. I imagine they did because it was awful hard to get out of Germany uh, at that time. But he sure tried and, and I, I really had great admiration for that. Uh, we were supposed to try and escape, and he, he lived it to the fullest. But anyhow, we did arrive at the interrogation center, and uh, the Germans just knew everything in the world about us, just everything. Their intelligence was superb. But uh, they, they used a lot of, of devious tricks, too. They would hold, hold out a great big form that was marked Red Cross on the top, and then uh, they'd tell you to fill it out. And it had very pertinent questions on it, such as uh, who are all of your crew members and what, uh, what group, squadron, and so forth were, were you flying with, and where were you going, and, and just all kinds of things that we weren't supposed to answer. I wasn't particularly scared when I was interrogated, excepting one particular time after I had been kept in solitary confinement for about a day, about three o'clock in the morning. They called me into uh, one of the German officers' interrogation office and they were just particularly interested in finding out one thing from me because they knew everything else. I might backtrack just a little bit and, and tell you what all uh, the interrogation officer told me. He, being as how I did not answer any of the questions they wanted to know, he said, well, I'll tell you then. And he gave me the names of all of our crew members he told me where I went to grade school, all the different armies, Air Corps schools I attended in the States. He even 
told me that one of the operations officers at our base had gotten a promotion the day before. They, they just knew everything about everything, but they didn't know one particular thing on the flight that I was shot down on. Our group on that particular day had two groups going to one target, and the, the uh, squadron that I was in went to a different target with a different group. It was a, what they call a composite um, group, I guess, from different bases. Well, this really had the Germans confused because they knew where most of our planes went that day, and they couldn't figure out why I was away over here with another group. And so, in particular, that they wanted to know what our target was that day and who we, who we were flying with, because they knew the pattern of who we usually flew with, what other groups. Um, I never did tell them, um, and uh, he he threatened he threatened me quite a bit because I didn't, and this was the only time that I really got scared a little bit. First of all, he just told me, "Well, all of your friends, your buddies, the rest of your crew members." are going to get to go to their regular POW camp, you know. Well, you're not going to get to go with your friends, you know, because you won't tell us. So, well, that was fine with me. I figured he was bluffing me, so I still wouldn't tell him. And then, uh, just out of the blue, this was 3 o'clock in the morning, I hear a bunch of soldiers outside the window, you know, we, with their, their marching and then the, and the orders, you know, and uh, they're going through s some kind of a drill-like thing. And then pretty soon I hear the orders, ready, aim, fire, you know, and a bunch of rifles going on. Well, they were I guess putting on a little show for me to show me that they were executing people that didn't co cooperate with them. Well, I, I got a bit scared when all that happened, but I still didn't tell them. And uh, I think he kind of found out anyhow, not through any part of my own, but uh, he started naming all the different targets that were hit that particular day, all the different cities. And he was watching me real close, and uh, possibly when, I, when he mentioned the name of the city that I went to, I don't know how I reacted, but uh, I think he probably found out, but he still didn't know when or why, and they wanted to know why we were there and who we were flying with, and I don't know whether they ever found that out, but they say if you're kept in this dulag lift over three days, well, uh, either the person has talked or they figure he will talk, so they'll keep him longer to find out whatever they can. Well, they told me I wasn't going, you know, with the, the rest of my friends, but the next day I got shipped out.
and uh, we were sent to a place called Stalagalipt Three. It was in a town called Sagan, S-A-G-A-N, Germany, about 60 miles southeast of Berlin, made rather famous by the movie The Great Escape, which happened at this particular camp uh, just shortly before I got there. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I was separated from the rest of my crew. The pilot and uh, bombardier were sent to what they called the center compound, and I was separated from them. I didn't see them in the tra in the en route. I didn't see them, but I was sent to what they called the south compound at the Stalaglick Three. So I was separated from the rest of my crew for the my duration of the stay at uh, Stalaglick Three. I never was really mistreated, excepting one time, which I didn't consider very serious, but it was right after I was captured and uh, the uh, soldiers uh, had picked uh, one of our waste gunners and me up together practically, and, and we were the only two that were really picked up right, right together. And they took us to kind of a little village jailhouse just for holding until they could transport us to this air base. I happened to make a silly remark because all the villagers were uh, gathering, you know, to see uh, these two airmen, you know, that were shot down. And I happened to make a little remark to uh, my gunner well, we're quite a sight, I guess, here for all the villagers. Well, one of the soldiers didn't like the way I was talking to my gunner, I, and he took the butt of his rifle and jammed me in the belly two or three times and knocked me down. And I gathered they didn't want us to talk after that, 
So I said no more, but that was the store physically harmed whatsoever. Um, they didn't they didn't physically abuse anybody that I know of. Of course, in this camp where I was was sent, it's a strictly an it was an officer camp, and uh, officers, according to the Geneva Convention, didn't have to. In fact, couldn't work. They couldn't make us work. In fact, they even brought in sergeants to do do the work in the camp. The American sergeants as our what you might call orderlies. So uh, life there was uh, not good. They they gave us no food. The the only food that we got was American food or British food parcels, which uh, came through the Red Cross. The German rations consisted usually of. some kind of a brown bread, they called it, we called it ersatz bread. It was, it had a lot of sawdust in it. And when I first got there, every man was getting one loaf of bread per week. As the war went on and it got worse and worse for the Germans, our rations went down and down and down and we were, Finally, it was one loaf for every two men, and uh, one loaf for every four men, and one loaf for every seven men, and sometimes we didn't get any bread at all. The only other thing that the Germans gave us besides the bread was occasionally they would have some rotten potatoes or uh, a vegetable like a turnip, and if they got ready, uh, rotten, and were not uh, 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 fit for consumption for the German people, they gave it to us. Yes, I consider myself lucky um, that I survived this ordeal because I know so many people that uh, were in combat that didn't survive, including the one crew member of our own, who incidentally was the only married man on our crew and the only one that had a child, which was the sad part about it. Um, But I considered myself lucky that I survived it. I'm thankful. I came out of it pretty well. I didn't weigh too much. I lost about 50 pounds in uh, the about the year's time that I was uh, over there, after we were uh, liberated, the the pounds came back real fast, and uh, I wasn't wasn't injured in any way, wasn't sick, wasn't really mistreated other than uh, having very little to eat and no fuel and it was quite cold there, incidentally, and I didn't tell you that after uh, after the Russian offensive started in the east and the Russians start getting near to us, well, uh, the Germans figuring that we were 
I guess about uh, the only thing that was of value to them to hold decided that they weren't going to let the Russians liberate us. And we were put on a forced march in the middle of winter. I think it was January the 29th, and it was about in a number of degrees below zero, and there was must have been like a foot of snow on the ground, but in everybody's condition and uh, some lacking shoes and, and clothing and so forth, we were forced to march for two or three days to get away from the Germans, and finally they, I mean the Russians, and finally they put us in boxcars and transferred us to another POW camp called uh, Stalag 7, and it was down near Munich, which uh, was an, in, an area of Germany which was still pretty secure for the Germans. Uh, we had about 10,000 American and British officers and men in Stalag Lip 3, and when they start accumulating all of these POWs from all the different camps in eastern Germany and all the different nationalities, I understood they had about uh, 120,000 over there in Mooseburg, and the conditions were much, much worse. The food was less, and the sanitary conditions were real bad. And I used to discuss it uh, with uh, this co-pilot of ours that was killed because he happened to be uh, Jewish, and he was he was rather concerned about getting shot down because being Jewish and getting captured in Missouri, in uh, Germany uh, concerned him quite a bit. In fact, he was quite fearful of being captured. And he, he was the man that was killed, and we still don't know why. It, it might have been the, this fear of being captured that killed him because he, he was found uh, with his parachute not opened on the ground, and we don't know whether he uh, didn't pull it. He pulled it in the ripcord, and it didn't work, or or he panicked, or no telling what happened. But uh, anyhow, his parachute did not work, and and he was killed. But he was he seemed. Nobody else seemed to be real fearful about uh, being captured, except him on our crew. As far as being a Jew in Germany, it didn't, uh, as far as the Americans or British were concerned, it, it, it didn't mean anything because you were an American, period, uh, and they treated all Americans alike. Um, but the uh, Later on, as the as the war wound down, there was a there was a rumor going around, which I think was true, that uh, Hitler wanted a name of all the Jewish POWs, and uh, I know General Spivey, who was uh, the uh, ranking officer in our camp, refused to give them the information of who was or who wasn't. He said we have no Jews, all we have are Americans. When I first 
came back home from being a POW, I was pretty much, uh, I guess, in a shell. I didn't uh, socialize too much, didn't really talk about it too much. Right now, uh, just like all the quote and unquote, there I was stories, you know, you shoot the bull about it now without any problem at all. I, you remember mostly the humorous things that happened to you and the bad things that happened you forget. I guess maybe just because we want to, we like to remember the funny things that happen. And uh, we just put the bad things that happen out of our minds. I can talk about them and it don't hurt me any, but uh, I'd rather talk about the other things. That was World War II veteran, Lieutenant Colonel Milt Shalinsky. Next on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll be joined by retired Master Sergeant Michael Washington, who served in the U.S. Marine Corps in conflict zones across the globe, from Bosnia to Iraq and Afghanistan. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.